Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin with this. You've, uh, you've heard over the last few days particularly about Jack Letts. Some in British media have labeled him Jihadi Jack. He's a Muslim convert from Oxfordshire, England. He made his way to Syria and the ISIS capital of Raqqa, the uh, caliphate capital that uh, ISIS said that Raqqa was. And according to uh, Jack Lett's parents, John and Sally Lett's, their son denounced ISIS and was locked up in nine successive ISIS jails after being put on trial by ISIS for denouncing the group as un-Islamic. Story goes on, and it's also repeated in the Daily Mail online that uh, he escaped and hid out in Raqqa before managing to make his way to Kurdish territory, where he's currently being held by YPG Kurdish militia. Now, Mr. Letts is begging Canada to negotiate his release from Kurdish prison and for Canada to take him in. He's a Canadian UK dual citizen, his father is Canadian. The United Kingdom, by the way, has shown no interest in uh, making it possible for Jack Letts to return to uh, to Britain, from what I understand. John Letts joins us. He's the father of uh, Jack Letts. He joins us from the U.K. Mr. Letts, thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Roy. Thank you for having me on your program. Is your son a member of ISIS? Uh, absolutely not. Never been. Um, condemned him all the time. Uh, no, I, I, you know, people can say I'm just a father in denial or I'm naive or anything like that. But no, there's never been any evidence to show that. If there was, I'd love to know it, because if he really was a member of ISIS, I'd be the first to queue up and condemn him. Uh, no, uh, and, and nothing's been presented to show us to this. He's been um, against it from the beginning. And by the way, he only ended up in Raqqa because he was hurt in, in Iraq. He was living actually in Iraq, and his house was bombed, apparently. Now, you know, I, I say, uh, obviously, I'm not there, and, and really, Jack's got to speak for himself of what we know. He only went to Raqqa towards the end of his trip um, there, or his, uh, when he went there, and to, to be treated in a hospital. It's not that he kind of ended up in the capital of the caliphate because he was part of such a caliphate. Did so he no, not? I understand. I, I read that he, he wanted to go to the ISIS territory because he was of the view that they had, in fact, created a, a sort of a perfect Muslim state to live in. Do I understand that correctly? Uh, well, I mean, I think, first of all, when he went, um, when he left Oxford, I, uh, I, the caliphate hadn't been even declared, and not many people knew about ISIS. I mean, we're, we were kind of up on physical events, but I didn't really know what ISIS was very much. I, I think the concept of a caliphate... Um, as much as we might think that's a horrible idea, or many of us do. I mean, I'm not a very religious fellow myself, um, but uh, I think there were a lot of Muslims who thought that perhaps there was some genuinely Islamic state was being created. And according to Jack and many people, I think, who have very strong Islamic views, that if there is, according to the Quran, from what I understand, if there is a genuine Islamic state, um, well, Islamic society, that it's the duty of a, of a Muslim to live in it. Now, Jack has OCD. You've probably read that, too. Very intense child. When he gets into something, he's really into it. And he learned Arabic in six months, and he decided that this... I think his Islam had a lot to do with his OCD. I mean, we don't have time to go into that. But, um, I mean, I had no, we had no, obviously no idea he was going. He just went to learn Arabic in, in Kuwait. Uh, and only later did he phone and said, oh, yes, I, I'm in Syria, but I'm actually going to Iraq. Um, so he went, I think, to explore that idea. I mean, he's 18. He had finished high school. He was full of energy. He wanted to. He said it's the duty of a Muslim to help other Muslims. And given what was going on in Syria, all the bombing and Assad, uh, the oppression that was going on, he said, maybe I can do something. And that was his language skills. And he could work in a hospital, he could work in a school, he could do something. And, you know, I would like him to answer this question, Roy, to be quite honest. I mean, you know, we, we well, we did what we could to, to help get him out, because mm -hmm. that's really what happened in the last 18 months before he left Raqqa, but papers don't seem to report. I'm, it's really great to speak to someone 
directly like this because obviously we haven't been able to talk about it to anyone because of the gagging order that we're under. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You sent him money. Your son asked for money. And it no, was, we tried to send him. You tried to send him money. Why did the British government take you to court for funding a terrorist operation? Is that correct? Uh, uh, yes, that's happening in while um, uh, at the Old Bailey um, in the dock uh, in September. Um, but we're also challenging the whole law in the Supreme Court on April 19th. Uh, basically, for about, uh, well, for a year, uh, let's say going to in 2015, this has been going on for such a long time. Um, he was sending lots of messages to us saying, I've got to get out of here. Please, Mom, please, Dad. You know, they, they're hunting down my friends because we're all standing against them. I mean, there was resistance activity inside Raqqa against ISIS. And he said, I'm in hiding. They have arrested me many times. They put me on trial in Mosul. But I, I and in the court, um, one, I don't think they expected them to speak Arabic. And, and he defended himself saying, well, that's actually against the Koran. You guys are not even Muslims, uh, going back to what you said earlier. <clears throat> so anyway, um, they put him in jail. But they always got, he was in house arrest where he escaped. But at the end, he was living in hiding. He said a lot of his friends have been killed. And the only way out is a people smuggler. Whether we like that term or not, it was the only way out. If ISIS catches you, caught you uh, escaping, um, they just chop your head off. And he said a lot of his friends had been killed. So we were getting these messages which were really difficult as a parent and um he said and he would say well there's a window of opportunity my friends are leaving with a people smuggler if i can get a thousand pounds then i can get out um so we went to the police because the police said we've been working with the police who kept prom the counterterrorism police in the uk who kept saying you know we're working together on this we want to help you get him out you know we just want to question him as far as we know he's done nothing wrong there's no evidence there's no chit chat on the social media about him there's no photos of him posing with weapons there's nothing like that but we want to detain him and, 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 and question him. And we, we thought that was great. Please detain him. I don't have a problem with that. Um, so, uh, we, so he sent a message. Uh, right, this was in December 2015. He said, look, with a thousand pounds, please, Mom, uh, you send that. I, I, will, um, I can get out. So we went to the police and we asked the counterterrorism police and they said, yes, send the money. So we tried. And, and the first one was blocked, but we thought it was just an administrative issue. And we tried to send another 500, think, being very naive, but thinking it was just uh, an issue about, they told us it was just about an issue sending money to that area. And, and um, obviously it was blocked by the police, and then we were arrested. I mean, we'd been in, we'd been, we were also talking to all sorts of other groups. We actually went to the high court to try to get permission to officially send it. So we felt we would, you know, it's a Canadian-British citizen. We just wanted to get him out. I mean, I was going to give a penny for terrorism. I mean, that's outrageous. I've had friends who were caught in the bombing in London. I mean, I'm as terrified and upset and, and, and fearful of, of this extremism as anyone. Anyway, it was to get him out, and they put us on... So they arrested us. They threw us in jail in the summer of 2016. I spent a week on remand in what they say is the worst prison in, in Europe. Uh, it was in solitary, I should point out. Uh, literally, no doctor, no phone call, no... No, not no lawyer, nothing for a week. So I nothing in the cell except an empty desk and a blocked up window. So he's had 35 days in solitary. So I, I kind of understand what he must have gone through. So by the end of that one week, I was at the end of my tether. And Jack, obviously, if you've read the reports, was clearly at the end of his. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, so, uh, that, so we were then released right away by another judge who said, this is outrageous. These parents only did this to try to help their child. So... Um, and, and anyway, so it keeps being delayed because we've realized, we, well, we're, we've challenged the law uh, on a point of law because the charge is extremely, um, what's the word? I mean, Serious, it, right? It, I mean, it's a... yeah, well, yeah, it's serious, but also the charges, you know, there was a risk that the money you tried to send could have been used for, for terrorism. Now, I fully appreciate that I wouldn't want to give 10p to any extremist group like that, but... You know, we were working with the police. Well, you did say yeah. that the, the anti-terrorism police unit had told you to go ahead and send the money. Yeah, that's exactly right. Can you hold on? The, Can you hold on a minute? Yeah, yeah I have to take sure. a break. We'll come back with... You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. John, thank you again for taking the time. Uh, I want to clarify a couple of things and just do very quickly. From listen, listeners have, uh, are asking, uh, a couple of people have asked, did your son go to Syria and Iraq to learn Arabic or did he learn Arabic 
in England before he went there. He learned Arab. No, he learned Arab. He's very, very good with languages, Jack. I mean, he he, sound, he can switch accents perfectly Canadian or perfectly British. He uh, learned Arabic mostly in Oxford. Um, he used to just talk to anyone he could. He okay. Arabic, we, um, okay. And, but, and then went to Kuwait. Actually went on a holiday to Jordan. Um, he just finished high school with his okay. friends and then ended up in Kuwait. So take us back to what happened when you were taken uh, to prison. You were put in solitary confinement for uh, funding terrorism. That was the charge, was it? Yeah. Uh, well, yes, it was. The charge is actually um, there is a risk. We believe, it's, it, the law is basically the police say, we believe that there is a risk, there was a risk that some of the money you tried to send could have been used for terrorism. Okay. That's the charge, and that's 14 years um, in jail for that. And and the thing is, the, it, it, it's really the opinion of the police that, that, that that's based on. So we're challenging that opinion and saying, well, actually, we think you should have some evidence to prove that there was some intent, you know, there was no, certainly no intent. So this and case, your case isn't over yet as far as that is oh, concerned. Oh, no, no, no. But but we're under uh, under British law, not in Canada, but under British contempt of court, we can't even mention that we're on trial. So, But you, you, can, so you can on this program because you're speaking yes. to Canada. Okay. <laughs> and I'm speaking to you too, Roy, which is great. Um, but I think, uh, uh, well, yeah, that's that's what we've been told, that, it, that we can't say. What, so the papers here, of course, have been printing all sorts of allegations and stuff about Jack, mostly all made up, and about us. And they seem to get away with it because they're very powerful media organizations and we, we can't defend ourselves because they won't print what, what we have to say. Okay. I think this term jihadi Jack that you keep mentioning, I mean, you know, no one questions where that came from. And I can tell you exactly how this whole avalanche started, which was, um, you know, in the September, October, when Jack left, this is 2014 now, um, we were kind of suckered into talking to a journalist from a Sunday paper here who we did for a few minutes for, for a little while and then said, mm, we're not comfortable with this because, you know, we, we don't really all know what's going on. But he, we told him that Jack had phoned and said he'd gone to Syria, but he was on his way to Iraq. We told that journalist that, but he then twisted that in the paper and said he coined the term jihadi Jack. And he said Jack phoned and told his parents that he had gone to Syria and joined ISIS. Well, that was never the case. He never said that. But it was completely invented. Once that hit the papers, it was on the wire, and absolute avalanche of everyone inventing stuff, posing with weapons, all this stuff. It was a pure invention, and I can't wait for this to be over to sue him for the lie. And once that's out, we couldn't change it. Anyway, that wasn't the question you asked me, Roy. No, I'm so no. No, no, that's fine. It's fine. So, you know, I'll ask you questions. You take it where you feel you need to take it. I, I'll bring you back on course if I, you know, there's questions I need answers to, and there are questions I need answers to. But how did this? So you were released from prison after a week in solitary, and uh, the case yeah. continues. Um, yes. Um, um, so we're 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 as I say, we're going to the Supreme Court in, in April, and if we, if you know, challenging the whole basis of the anti-terrorism law and the way we've been charged, the fact that we think they need evidence, mm-hmm. if we win that, great. But uh, from what I can tell, from what we've been told, that they are still very intent on uh, on taking us to court in September. Apparently, quite a few people have been charged uh, with, you know, sending tiny amounts of money or a pair of running shoes or something like that to, yeah. their, colleagues and to, to their family. Now, you know, and I, I want to stop all that, too. I have no problem with that. Okay. But we really did try to cooperate with the police to get Jack out and to get him into his, their hands. And so I really didn't expect this to be right. turned around on us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Let me ask you, does your friend, does your son have friends who are ISIS fighters? Uh, ask, I don't know. Ask him. I'm sure he must know people who must have been there. Um, he was in Raqqa. He must have met them. But from the sounds of it, there were quite a group of people who were opposing them as well. Yeah. I take it I, from I'm no expert on on what the dynamics inside that, but because Jack was quite a dedicated Muslim, I think he was able to say, "Well, look, you know, if you're killing people like me, yeah. who are real committed Muslims, I mean, he wants to train to be a, a, an Islamic scholar. So if they're killing people like that, well, it would look really bad in society. That's how I. That's what people have, have explained it to us. Okay, here's a question: If if he says this to uh, to the to ISIS in Raqqa, challenges them up front, and they take him to court. Um, how is it that he survived that? We, we, we constantly heard that if you challenge them, 
particularly on any of their beliefs, and they had you in their custody, you weren't going to survive. Yeah, it sounds, I realize it's quite, and he keeps saying, he said, I, I can't believe I'm still alive, and most people I know, including the Kurds who first picked him up, couldn't believe he was alive. They called him a hero when they first got him. But that happened in Mosul, from what I gather, but then there was house arrest in, in Raqqa. I mean, I don't know all the details here. I want to speak to him about this, but, you know, I haven't spoken to him directly in two years, mm-hmm. and we've had text messages only seven months ago, and then just recently this last lot, but we didn't get to speak to him. So I, I have a lot of questions to ask him about all of this and yeah. all these details. But but it's the assumption that he was some murdering, raping, killing ISIS person is what I'm challenging because I don't see any evidence for that. I wish, you know, please show it to me, somebody. And given what I've seen, you know, it isn't there. But it does seem, well, I think I think they couldn't kill everyone. I think there was quite a lot of opposition. I know he was terrified, thinking he wasn't going to make it. And when you get a message just before Raqqa fell, we were getting messages from him saying, well, we, we, we had the goodbye message saying, thanks for being, you know, decent parents, uh, but uh, I'm, there's no way I'm going to make it out of here. This is obviously what God, Allah, wants from me, and uh, I would, and because ISIS will kill me if they catch me escaping, and, and obviously if he gets picked up, he'll probably get killed on the way out. So, goodbye. So that was kind of difficult. Um, and that's what we're seeing. And, and then you know, it was miraculous three weeks later when we got a text out of the blue saying, I'm with the Kurds. It's great. Yeah, no, he, t- he, he, was, he, he was in ISIS territory for three years. And was he being yeah. hunted at that time? And was he, because I understand that he was, he was hiding and hiding in, in Raqqa, was he being actively hunted by ISIS? Uh, the last 18 months, he said yes. Uh, well, they were hunting everyone and, and anybody who kind of resisted them in any way. I think there was like civil disobedience kind of stuff. What I heard, I, I really don't, you know, I'm really not an expert on this. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole story of what went on inside that is yet to come out because I think, you know, the media has tended, well, there weren't any media inside. How do you know? And and it is difficult to know who to believe and, and what's going on. I mean, yeah. I can see all that. No, I understand. I, I understand your perspective. You're the, you're the father, you know, and, and, and you know your son and you... You want to believe the best of your son, and I understand that. We're in this country. We're looking at people who want to come to Canada. We're looking at a prime minister who says he's going to uh, actually allow committed ISIS members back into Canada, believes they can extraordinarily co- contribute to Canada, and many of us are saying that's mad. Um, but you know, there's, there's, there's so much going on that, uh, that, we, that we have to talk about. And I would imagine that you would say uh, you would be in opposition to actual members of ISIS being allowed to re-enter a society, I imagine, and uh, and operate freely in that society and have the prime minister suggest uh, they could do extraordinary things. At the same time, while I'm saying that, I know you don't want to upset the, the government because you're trying to get your son in here. No, uh, no. I mean, in a nutshell, I agree with you. I mean, I don't want any any violent, nasty extremists walking around, as you said, walking around freely is, is I think, the point. Yeah. The first reaction is the same one that you have, obviously. I have family and friends who walk the streets of Canada like anyone, and I intend to walk the streets of Canada again. Yeah. Um, but it's it's. I think that's the first reaction. But then I think the second tier of thinking about that has to be a bit more thought through. Um, and, and one, they're not going to be walking around freely. I mean, people, you know, one, they sh- it, look, if they've done crimes, so we all agree to this, but that's what I think is great about Canada as opposed to Britain. I mean, I believe in the rule of law. I believe in justice. You know, I believe people, we have to, although it's quite a tough one at the moment, but there's still got to be some sort of presumption of innocence until proven guilty. I mean, that's the cornerstone of democracy, the cornerstone of law. That's the Magna Carta. You know, it, the British response here of ministers, Minister of Defense, Minister of International Development here was, Anybody who went to Syria should be hunted down and killed. Well, if that's that's just that's squads. I mean, I understand that if you're the victim of a bomb blast or you know that that the, the, the fear of a bomb causing massive damage, you know, we have to be incredibly vigilant. But I think that is, from what I hear and experts have written, that's doable. And anyway, everyone should be detained at the border. Anybody who's any hint of suspicion of having been out there should be detained, not allowed to walk. Yeah, well, you see, our prime minister is not talking about anybody doing any prison time. I, you know, we all understand that you have to find that there is guilt, but to say that someone who was a participating member of ISIS can contribute extraordinarily to your country and then equate them with legitimate immigrants 
who've come to the country and built the country is a position that is unsustainable and just seems absolutely, I'll say it again, yeah, I, insane. I, I, yeah, and, and, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not competent to talk about No, that, I understand. I get, what, I get it. From I get what it. I've heard, from what I gather, inside that Islamic world, and I, I'm really no expert on this, however, I think the feeling, from what I've heard, and I, I've read, read, read a fair amount about this, that the concept was to build a caliphate inside Syria and the enemies of the caliphate inside Syria, but that a lot of those people didn't have a problem with clearly Western societies in other places like Canada. I mean, you know, has Canada done too much to oppress the world? Not very much. So uh, I think there, there are, it is, is it possible to ever, you know, help anyone, uh, change someone's view like that? I, I think, you know, it may well be possible. I don't know. And, I don't think so. I, I doubt, well, because I, cause they, were looking, they were looking for an I end of times battle. It, Roy. I don't feel competent about it, but yeah. I understand the fear. But, but first you've got to prove that someone has been a member of ISIS. Then it's a different kettle of fish. And as far as I can see, you know, as well, I, I know my son, as you say, I do know my son. And, and I know how he was certainly before he left. I'm not saying people can't change their mind and, and be brainwashed and all the rest of it. But he wouldn't have heard a flea when he was here. And his view about Islam was, you know, you can't injure a blade of grass. He's a purist, Roy. He's mm-hmm. a, he has an obsessive OCD tendency. And I knew he was going to fall out with ISIS immediately he bumped into him. And he, he told us in Iraq, ISIS had nothing to do with where they were. He was living with the people. John, um, you, you have all this information about him, and you believe in yeah, your son, and I understand. And you, you, no, no, no. I, I'm, I, I'm asking you questions. I really appreciate yeah. that you've come on the program, because uh, we, we want to find out what we can. We want to know what we can. Yeah. Now, why is it that the British government is not showing any interest in having your son return to the UK? If you tell them the same things you've said to us here today, yeah. why are the Brits... Not saying, well, we'll at least give him a chance. Simple, well, give a, a simple answer in our case. I mean, you know, there are many Brits who went over there, and, you know, a lot of really nasty ones like these. The Beatles. It's such a corruption of the word Beatle, isn't it? Yeah. like the music, but I don't like the, the jerks who went out. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there, there is clearly an issue, and we've had bombs here and everything. But I think our case is, in a sense, slightly different. Remember, we're being put on trial for funding terrorism, and they really want to nail down that as a cornerstone of their anti-terrorism. They've spent over three million pounds, that double that in Canadian, on prosecuting us. So imagine if Jack is freed, and there's no evidence against him. What happens to our prosecution? They've spent all this money and time and destroyed our lives for three years. I mean, we've been blacklisted. You know, they, they, they've you know, closed our bank accounts, all this kind of stuff they've done to us. So much about being innocent and proven guilty. They've just tried to destroy our lives, my business. I'm at the farm here. They've tried to destroy so much. And if, 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 all the, if it comes out that he's innocent, and he would be, if anybody, a witness. But if, that, if he comes out and there's nothing against him, we're, I think our prosecution is going to look a little bit um, difficult. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one reason. But I think it's also they don't want to open the door to just anybody flooding back. And, and I get that. But somehow there's got to be a way of separating between those who are – there's clear evidence. There's chit-chat on social media. There's photographs. Like, you know, these people were proud to be ISIS fighters, proud to pose with heads and everything else. I mean, there is nothing like that for Jack except one photo where he's standing on a rock outside of Raqqa, after he'd been there. If you look closely, you'll see he was injured in his arm. And, and, and he stood on a rock, but I have exactly, I have a photo from when he was eight years old, and it's online if you search for it. Eight years old, he's in exactly the same pose, with his finger up, because he was always a poser, as we say over here. Uh, he posed in front of, he was always, you know, with his fingers in the air. And that sign is the Taweed. Now, it's been corrupted by ISIS, but that finger in the air, I'm told, is the symbol of Islam. It's this oneness of Allah or something. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's an ISIS salute as the papers have interpreted it. So okay. you know, he's John. to answer all these questions, Roy. You know, I wish he was he was talking to you. Yeah. Me. Yeah. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on nine hundred CHML. Is our government actively engaged in trying to get your son into Canada? Well, we've been in contact with the Canadian government for two and a half years trying to get him out. 
um, when we were trying to get them out. We tried all the official channels first before, you know, trying to do it ourselves. And, you know, that's ended up. So, yes, we contacted Global Affairs. Well, when, he, when he got out in May, we then rekindled it with um, Global Affairs Canada, who, of course, have told us don't talk to the media about this because it's all very diplomatic, etc. But the problem is they say the, the Kurds are non-state actors, as they put it, so that it's very difficult to speak to them. They can't find anyone to speak to. Well, they have set up quite a state, the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. Um, so there are officials all over. So we've been working with them, trying to encourage them to do all they can. And, and they have, uh, well, it's when Jack made contact three weeks ago. So that, that's what, that was eight, what, nine months ago. And for nine months, they've been telling us we're doing everything we can to try to get Jack out that we, we are going to try to get him to Canada. We, what, they, what their key message was, we don't want any Canadians tortured, and we're going to do everything we can to prevent that. We, we don't tolerate that in Canada. Whether they're guilty or not, that can be sorted out later, but we don't want Canadians tortured, and so we're trying all we can to do that. Well, that's been nine months, and we're running out of time because he's, he's actually very ill. He's got a family kidney disease. He's been passing kidney stones without any pain, pain relief, well, he tried to hang himself, as you know. Uh, he's locked in a cell with 30 people, all of the people probably he was opposed to, by the way. he's He's got a growth on his privates, um, which is getting worse. So I think, you know, he, it, he's not going to last forever where he is. So we have to do something, which is why we've gone to the media, because we need a bit more action in what's happening. And the Kurds have said, well, we're happy to hand over to the British or to the Canadians. So open the door. So we thought everything was starting to roll. We've, we, we've had a Canadian lawyer involved. And, you know, we, I've written to every MP in the Canadian Parliament. I had two responses so far. Um, and, uh, and we've had no, well, we, we've had acknowledgments from foreign affairs. But so we thought things were rolling because now that he, he managed to speak to a global affairs, that was because a, a, a British Sunday paper published an article talking about the horrible detention he's in and talking about the Kurds and, and the democratic state that they're supposedly constructing. And that's when he was allowed to speak to Global Affairs. So once he spoke to them, um, we, had, we have messages now. It's pretty clear what's been going on. So we thought things were going to start to roll. But then I've heard there's been a statement saying from the minister's office saying, well, we're not sure if he's coming to Canada. So, as far, which is devastating because for eight months we've been working as best as we could with Global Affairs, and I think they have been working pretty hard, certainly to, to get access. I mean, the Red Cross hasn't been allowed access for ever since he's been in detention for nine mm -hmm. months. I thought, you know, international human rights law is at least the Red Cross can get in. Okay, I, I don't a, really know what's going on, Roy. Okay, I have 90 seconds left. Are you aware of other parents, other families who are trying similarly to get their sons or daughters out of that area, whether doesn't regardless of whether they're in Kurdish custody or not, uh, is the there a group of families no. working together? No, because no. we're not in the we're not Muslims. No, we're not in the in, in in Muslim society. There probably are some, but they don't. You know, we don't okay. talk to them. They don't talk to us. There's no group for this, and everyone's terrified. So, John, in the in the less than sixty seconds we have left, talking to people across this country now, they're hearing you across Canada. Make your case, please. I mean, I'm not. Why should we accept your son? Because he's Canadian and he believes, and I think fundamentally will believe in the values of Canada like I do. I believe that people are innocent until guilty. I think Canada's a much more, I don't mean tolerant of extremism, but tolerant of other religions and other faiths and, and, and other perspectives. Give him a chance. People are innocent until proven guilty. I mean, he wants to live in Canada. We all do. And that was our plan. So, you know, if he's done something wrong, he should pay the price. I totally agree with that. But give him a chance to speak, to defend himself. Don't let him rot in a in a prison cell when he actually stood against the people that were against. I mean, those are the people we could use to talk the extremists out, because in the end, we're going to have to face this issue. And he understands it from the inside. He's seen the brutality, and he's condemned it. Those are the people we need to to manage that extremism in Islamic society. Right. And I think that's an enlightened perspective that Canada has that Britain doesn't have. John, I He's thank Canadian. you. I, th I thank you for the time. 
Uh, and thank you and we'll, very we'll, much, Roy. I'm sorry I go on. It's no, 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 no. We'll we'll stay in touch with you and, and talk with, anyway. speak with you again if you're willing to do that. Yeah, I, I always would be. Okay, thank, thank you, John. Thank you very much for, for talking to me. All the best to you and to your wife. Uh, John Letts from the UK. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I'm just checking a few tweets on the situation between British Columbia and Alberta. At uh, L.W. Schultz, Alberta and B.C. and the feds are the problem with this pipeline. What's wrong with this country? The pipeline benefits all Canadians. That's a fact. Build a school a day or a hospital on the profits plus no deficit. And uh, from C.V. Van Heck J., I'm an Alberta resident. We need a better price for our oil. That means we need Tidewater. B.C. wants to protect their coastline from any damage. The extra ship traffic is invasive. Can a ship-filling terminal be built farther out to sea, and then we'll still get a fair market price? It goes on. It goes on. So which of the provinces declared war first on the other, economic war? Was it British Columbia or Alberta? The B.C. proposed ban on increased shipments of diluted bitumen through the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension. Um... Is fearful, according to a statement from Premier John Horgan, fearful of spills of the bitumen, and uh, he suggested that Alberta could voice any opposition in the courts, except that Alberta Premier Rachel Notley decided instead to fire back and shut the door on imports of British Columbia wine into her province, declaring Alberta's jobs and interests must be protected. Does Ottawa now have a plan to ease or end the tension between the neighboring provinces? Or is Mr. Trudeau's desire served if, as many people are suggesting, he doesn't want the pipeline? Perhaps Alberta and British Columbia have just made it possible for the Prime Minister to avoid a pipeline extension being built by having Kinder Morgan eventually bow out of the process because it's taking too long. John McComb is the Breakfast Morning Show host at CKNW Radio in Vancouver, our great chorus radio station in Vancouver. Hey, John. How are you, Roy? I'm just uh, going through several uh, crates of B.C. wine here, trying to personally make up for uh, the loss of expenditures in Alberta. So um, if we could do this quickly, I would appreciate it. (laughs) Uh, Do the courier thing. Send me a few. (laughs) Is that legal? I'm not sure. I don't care. (laughs) Ryan Jasperson is uh, one of Alberta's most popular radio talk show hosts. He's on 6.30 Chat in Edmonton, our chorus radio station in the Alberta capital. He's on from 9 until noon. Ryan, thanks for making the time. Uh, Roy, I, I appreciate the invitation. It's nice to hear your voice and John's. I've, I've just accomplished a morning's worth of tasks, uh, ticking them off my to-do list here at home. One of them was taking the bottles out for recycling. So it gave me an opportunity to, to pull my family's track record on the percentage of wine that we consume from British Columbia as opposed to overall bottles. And, and I'd say we're polling 40 to 50% of the wine we go through is from B.C. So I wanted to plant that flag early on. We've long been friends with that industry west of us. Well, apparently Mr. McComb has quite a supply, so he can probably service you as well. I'm just I'm just trying to do uh, my part for British Columbia, Roy. That's all. I understand. John, is British Columbia's government the architect of the current elbows up position from Alberta? And how surprised is Premier Horgan of the economic rebuke from Alberta? Well, I, I think that there's there's no doubt that, uh, uh, that because the pipeline is under federal jurisdiction and it has uh, received the blessing of the federal government that uh, John Horgan uh, stepped into this. Um, perhaps not realizing what Rachel Notley would do, but certainly with the idea in mind that uh, he wanted to slow this thing down. He wanted to uh, get some uh, some challenges in the way of the pipeline, and uh, so I don't think there's any there's any question that uh, he has succeeded in uh, at least uh, bringing this debate to. Uh, to the attention of the federal government, but uh, yeah, I think uh, it's safe to say that uh, the BC started this latest round. Is he generally satisfied with what's happened since he started this round? Is it does it unfolded in a way that maybe was somewhat unpredictable, but unfolded in a way that he can manage? Well, the impression that I'm getting is that uh, he's he's actually fairly upbeat and fairly pleased 
by the way things are going because, uh, I mean, from his perspective, I think one of two things is probably going to happen. Either the federal government is going to get involved, uh, which takes the the political pressure off of him, uh, or uh, there will be uh, some, uh, uh, you know, other sanctions from from Rachel Notley. And uh, either way, he's... to his party into the environmental movement he's going to look like well look, you know he's standing up to the to the Kinder Morgan pipeline which he promised to do in the last election campaign mm-hmm. Ryan you spoke with the uh, premier Notley and with Jason Kenney are they in unison over the need to respond firmly to British Columbia over the pipeline extension well, well there's no question Roy whose political survival depends more on the approval of this Kinder Morgan pipeline and of course that's premier Rachel Notley uh, Jason Kenney, leader of Alberta's official opposition, has been very vocal about the need for Alberta to think Alberta first and, and almost Alberta only uh, in, in taking a position uh, against provinces that would stand in the way of increased bitumen exports by, by way of a, a pipeline expansion. Also, you know, in, in challenging Ottawa to assert its federal jurisdiction. This is a a province, we see B.C. threatening to essentially uh, explore legislation that might limit the amount of uh, resource traveling through a federally approved pipeline. So, again, this does go to Ottawa. It's no secret to anybody. Uh, John and I spoke about this and heard it from our listeners as part of a simulcast earlier this week. Uh, Everybody knows that Ottawa can step into this, but Ottawa has a lot to lose when it comes to their political fortunes in the lower mainland, where I think these anti-pipeline expansion uh, sentiments are the loudest here in alberta both the governing ndp and the united conservative party knows how important these pipeline projects are not just to alberta's economy where this one's worth uh, about one and a half billion dollars a year but also to the federal economy it's of interest to everybody everybody's got something to lose her but arguably nobody has more to lose than Rachel Notley. It's interesting the how uh, how emotional people get about the pipeline issue when they're not even directly, and I mean geographically directly engaged. I think about the Energy East pipeline. There was so much opinion from people who weren't either in Quebec or in Alberta, and they felt so strongly about the pipeline. And I imagine the situation is no different this time. Ryan, would you tell us, though, how economically important is to Alberta the extension of the Kinder Morgan pipeline? Just to the promise. Well, this, uh, for starters, uh, Roy, everybody knows that uh, unemployment in Alberta has been more of a story over the last year and a half, two years, that, than it's been in a generation. Uh, we saw numbers into the double digits, uh, especially in, in urban centers like Calgary and Edmonton, and especially as well, of course, of note in, in smaller oil communities. And, and we could name off a dozen of them. Uh, communities that were not used to uh, some of their citizens being out of work for 6 to 12 months at a time. So there's the matter of getting people back to work. Uh, this pipeline project is, is worth between 7 and, and $8 billion. And then, of course, the, the economic activity that comes with ramping up the exports. There's also the matter of consumer, or rather, investor confidence. And people wonder, as was the case with, with uh, TransCanada Pipelines looking east, and you touched on this, Roy. If it becomes a business decision where Kinder Morgan simply says, this isn't feasible or of interest to, an, to us anymore, and they walk away, then it's convenient for all the politicians except for the one who most needs that pipeline to get built. So that's the story, I think, economically speaking, out of Alberta. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Guys, uh, let's just do away with the politely waiting until the next guy has a chance to speak. That doesn't work for radio talk show hosts. We like to jump in. We like to share our thoughts. So it's it's uh, open mics here. If I can just take you to the broadcast that you did, the simulcast that you did, what did you raise, and what did you hear back from your listeners? Well, let me jump in because uh, Ryan, Ryan's been hogging the mic as, as, as usual. So let me, let me uh, jump in here and uh, say I was actually uh, pleasantly surprised in, by talking to the people uh, uh, the callers from Alberta, because what I heard was people who understood uh, the concerns that that uh, BC has uh, around uh, shipping uh, bitumen uh, through Vancouver Harbor and through uh, Georgia Strait, etc. Uh, and uh, I was expecting a little bit more uh, table pounding and 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 accusation. And in fact, it was. Uh, 
it was anything but that. So I was pleasantly surprised by that. Look, what what hasn't been discussed uh, very much is uh, the federal government in the last week has come out and said we're going to completely re uh, redo. Uh, the environmental assessment process. We're going to get rid of the National Energy Board. We're going to we're going to get rid of that system because that system didn't work. The British Columbia government stood up and said, "Well, hang on a second. That was the system that you used to approve the Kinder Morgan pipeline. So if it was a bad system, why are are we having to you know potentially deal with the uh, the problems and the fallout from that?" Uh, the National Energy Board process didn't look into the potential of of, uh, of oil spills directly or what diluted bitumen does or doesn't do in the water. So the NDP out here is saying, look, we, you know, we're going to be the ones that are going to have to clean this crap up if it hits the water. You know, we need some time to figure out what, uh, what that looks like and, and how we would go about doing that. Now, that, I think, has taken... Uh, uh, obviously took Rachel Notley and took the feds by some surprise. But, you know, the, the NDP government and John Horgan say that's uh, that's very much their concern out here. It's it's delay, 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 which suits Premier Horgan just fine. But unfortunately for Rachel Notley, more than half of the sand has fallen from the top of the hourglass, and she knows that she needs to get a pipeline built. I mean, we can... Uh, dream of what it might look like if Alberta's economic fortunes had turned around and we were in the black instead of the red and there were no uh, deficit budgets in front of us. But this isn't just an economic turnaround that Premier Rachel Notley needs. She needs the storyline. She needs what she can sell to Albertans as an example of showing strong leadership, putting the province first, and seeing results. So a tie-up for her in court does not exactly work, while for Premier Horgan, it might suit him just fine. Now, we talked about Rachel Notley maybe having the most to lose here. She also has the most to gain. And if this expansion is a go-ahead and she's been a strong part of the storyline at the front of this, with something as, really, gentlemen, benign as a ban on importing B.C. wines, we're talking $72 million a year versus a billion and change i mean there were bigger punches she could have thrown but she would have been cutting off her nose to spite her face she's not looking to slow down the economy in alberta uh for part of a bigger storyline but if she can get this thing done if she can implore ottawa to act all for just banning bc wine for a month or two that's a political win at what point does kinder morgan say enough we're out well, I, ta- I had Ian Anderson, the CEO of uh, Kinder Morgan Canada, on my show this week, and, and I asked him that very question. I said, do you guys have a drop-dead date? Does your, as you, is your board of directors you know, breathing down your neck saying uh, we have to uh, get this thing started or we have to cut out? And he said no. He said there is no drop-dead date, and you know, they obviously want to get going as, uh, as uh, quickly as possible. It's already been delayed by a, a year or so. Uh, but he didn't give me any indication that uh, the company was thinking in terms of uh, of uh, pulling the plug on this. So uh, that obviously can change week to week and month to month. But uh, so far, no indication that uh, that Kinder Morgan is uh, going to back away uh, while the political shenanigans go on. Those political shenanigans, could they be sufficiently um, grated? Could nerves be sufficiently grated that the... The tit-for-tat escalates, so British Columbia now does ban something from Alberta. Alberta then raises the stakes. Are we in a potential poker game here or not? I don't see, I don't see who that really works for long-term. I mean, I yeah. think, uh, John, who will forget the caller and uh, our simulcast that described this as a, a flaming clown car plummeting off <laughs> the cliff. I mean, people are convinced, I think, uh, and people are aware, maybe is a better way to put it, that this is political theater, but it doesn't serve anybody well to start answering back and forth with more and more sanctions and bans and boycotts. These are two economies, these two provincial economies that have worked well together. Typically, Western provinces are used to standing up together against the East. So this is an unfamiliar storyline, and I'm not sure how comfortable Western Canadians in either province would be if this turned into a, an all-out brawl. 
Well, I don't see. I I just don't see that happening from BC's perspective. I just I don't see that the NDP uh, government here, uh, and from the discussions I've had with them, the they're they're not interested in going. Uh, you know, doing a tit for tat. Uh, situation. I think that that the uh, the the end game, if there is one for for Horgan, is to uh, one either get this thing into court, and then it's anybody's guess as to when the pipeline would be built, uh, or the federal government steps in with. I was reading this morning that uh, there might they might be offering some incentives. I don't know what those incentives would look like. On the other side of that coin, B.C. is uh, sitting here waiting for billions of federal dollars for infrastructure improvements. We've got a transit system that needs to be built out. Uh, We have major projects that the feds are involved in. And uh, does Justin Trudeau have the jam to say to B.C., uh, well, forget that uh, SkyTrain extension. Uh, That's on hold until you guys, uh, you know, get out of the way. Now we're too close to 2019 for that. You think? Yeah. I think. Gentlemen, I thank you very much. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial, down to more than 1,000 points on two occasions, not once but twice. And that's the first time, the second time in history that that's happened. And what it's done is cause a lot of people with limited knowledge of what goes on in the markets and I have all my money in the market, made me lose some sleep. And I don't know whether I should be losing sleep or whether this should be seen as an opportunity going forward. It all depends on who you talk to, I guess. So I want to talk about that. Uh, British Columbia and Alberta taking swipes at each other. We, last hour, spent time on that issue with our great friends and my colleagues on the Chorus Radio Network, John McComb from CKNW Radio in Vancouver, and Ryan Jesperson at 6.30 Chad in Edmonton. Took your calls on that. And uh, the United States lowering taxes, including significantly lowering business taxes. How's that going to affect this country's economy, where we're introducing taxes like the carbon tax? Going to go national, except if one of the three current candidates for the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party become the premier, they're going to refuse a carbon tax. So you start to get a headache wondering about thinking about all the potentials here because the federal government has the right to set taxes in the provinces. I don't think can overrule the federal government. Then there's the courts. Uh, Significant numbers of jobs lost after the minimum wage went up. 88,000 jobs lost in Canada in January of this year and many thousands lost in Ontario, lower paying jobs. Does that have to do exactly with the minimum wage hike? I don't know. And does business have a preference as far as political parties winning upcoming elections is concerned? So you see, this has all been whirring around in my brain. And when that sort of thing happens, I have to go for counseling. And for counseling, I go to Tom Caldwell, the chairman of Caldwell Securities, where they have uh, seats on the Toronto and the New York Stock Exchanges. Mr. Caldwell is one of this country's and one of North America's most highly respected financial experts. Tom, thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for the introduction. You understand how this is... Very confusing for somebody like me and probably a whole bunch of other people in this country. Well, you know, it's interesting. 90% of my job, or some portion of it, is helping people quell their emotions. More money's lost in emotions than, than any kind of market move whatsoever. We, the market's had some very, very good moves over the last several years. It's been extremely strong. Uh, and it's not uncommon to let off some steam. What we've had happen here at the beginning of this year is the economy improving, which spooked people into thinking interest rates are going to go up. And they are. I don't think they're going to go up dramatically to choke things off. But that is what started the the sort of panic, oh, we're not going to have cheap money, uh, etc., and that's going to impact markets. Now, there's another factor which everybody misses. There's several levels to markets. There's a lot of exotic products out there uh, off of ETFs, uh, the VIX, the volatility indexes. So once the and, and these are relatively new, particularly the VIX products, that that it, you trade volatility and they're not proven. I mean, it's like the British say, too clever by half, and those things literally imploded, and it was like the tail wagging the dog. So on one hand, the market starts down, triggers the VIX, and vice versa. So there, there's several levels to this market. I, I would just say to people, keep it simple. You know, I go back and and I think 
strategically. I think of big companies. Um, you know, I think you were mentioning going to bonds. Well, bonds yield you 2% or so. Uh, I can buy a bank stock yielding me 4.5%, which is like 6% uh, on a bond. And sooner or later, banks get things right. They are a nurtured species in Canada. So it makes sense to still own good companies. As you know, Roy, I'm an incurable optimist. So uh, I, I would just suggest that people don't panic. Uh, I'm not, that's not saying it can't go down a bit from here. But the world will roll on, whether it be at the end of this year or whatever. The world will move on. Sometimes the panic message starts, um, I have to say, with a media report, because we're the ones that provide the information. And I think we've become not comfortable with, but we've learned to understand a three or four or 500-point drop in a day. doesn't make us feel good, but we've sort of learned to accept that. Often but when we hear it's a... 24,000 Dow, it doesn't mean anything. Now, what it meant something was in 1987 when the market dropped 25% in a day. Now, that's a little bit different. That catches your attention. So within the galaxy of corrections, uh, this is serious. It's, it's, it's obviously unnerving, but it's not killer stuff. And uh, is there an opportunity to make money at this time? Well, you know, I'm a garbage man. Uh, you know, I, people don't like my saying that. I love crises. That's where the bargains live. I've been, I've been watching a General Electric that's had tremendous problems, but the darn stock won't get down far enough. So I'm really kind of hoping to get that thing down 10 and $11. Uh, I was looking at some of the Canadian banks again that had good moves. Commerce Bank was up at uh, 122. It's down to around 112, so about an 8% decline. Uh, anything that I see in big companies where they have significant declines, uh, I will tend to do that. And remember, stocks bounce violently off of uh, major sell-offs because what happens, it's only the really convinced sellers at the end that keep shorting and shorting and shorting and selling, and then when they stop, there's no one else selling, and that's when they have the bounce. So typically, after a violent decline, you can have a violent in increase. Now, we're seeing big volatility in markets now, which we haven't seen for a few years, because these ETFs are just uh, exchange-traded funds are just continually sopping up and buying capital. So when they introduce volatility, it's going to be real volatility. So uh, most traders like volatility. Most brokers like volatility. And I, as a money manager, like volatility because that's when I can readjust portfolios and get bargains. Because I trade the big stuff. i gotta, I got to buy companies in adverse circumstances. That's where I can create value. Hmm. Um. Looking at what's going on in Canada economically and politically, and we look at the West, uh, British Columbia and Alberta, with the British Columbia government talking about delays in the extension of the Kinder Morgan pipeline because of concerns about diluted um, uh, oil spills, bitumen spills, and the response from uh, Alberta and the Premier of Alberta, who is under political pressure, has an election coming up in the not-too-distant future, is, well, we're going to fight back, Mr. Horgan, Premier of B.C., and what we're going to do is we're going to stop B.C. wines from entering our province. How long that's going to happen, I don't know. But it now the, there were people waiting for B.C. to retaliate. Uh, two of my colleagues on the air in the last hour from Vancouver and from Edmonton, they don't expect retaliation to be the name of the game. But what does it mean to you? What does it mean to the financial community when natural resources become the ping-pong ball, if you were, if you will, between two governments? Well, I think sooner or later we've got to decide whether we're going to have a country or not. And part of that falls to the federal government as well. We've got to stop you know, playing politically correct, apologizing games to every group that sees them as victimized, and get to building a country. For example, uh, LNG, liquid natural gas, is already being manufactured out of the U.S., being shipped to Asia, monster industry, and eventually we have to grow our economy. And we have been dependent on natural resources, uh, and we still will be for a significant period of time. But I think the feds have to enter into the game and show some courage and leadership. Uh, oil, for example, in Alberta trades at about, I don't know, $20, $30 discount from world oil. We've got to talk to Quebec, we've got to talk to the East, we've got to talk to the West, and say we're a country, and we're a country that's in business, and yes, we have to have environmental protection. But this is political beyond that. Listen, the most dangerous thing of shipping oil is shipping it by rail. Pipelines are far safer than that and, and, and far more eco-friendly as well. So I think, I think we need some grown-ups and get away from the political stance in this stuff. Mm -hmm. Because in uh, Quebec, as we often said, on the St. Lawrence River, there's no shortage of tankers delivering oil to the refinery in Montreal.
and uh, there are no protests. There's no vocal concern about the environmentally sensitive areas, particularly in the Gas Bay region. Uh, And I wonder, uh, I always say, follow the money. Somebody is economically, somebody's making enough money off that oil, off that transport to silence the criticism. I always keep joking. It's nice to know in a changing world that people can still be bought. (laughs) (laughs) I think we may have, I think you might be onto something there, Roy. (laughs) No names. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Tom, what about this issue with the United States under Donald Trump um, lowering taxes significantly? We have record employment for certainly for the recent past. There is um, economic health. The economy is in the U.S. I'm repeating myself here, but it's growing and it's strong. In Canada, we're not doing badly, although we shed 88,000 jobs in January. But we're adding to the tax load while the United States is reducing the tax load. How attractive is it for American companies with subsidiaries in Canada to close their offices here? And how attractive is it to Canadian companies that maybe need some stimulus to get them to where they want to be, to say, we'll just close the doors here and we'll go where the the tax uh, situation and the economic base is better than it is for us in this country. What's the danger here? What's the, is, that, is, this, is this what's going to happen? Well, Roy, you know, countries as well as companies are in competition. And clearly we are, we, we've actually been lazy over the years. We've allowed ourselves to become far too dependent. It was too easy. Uh, to deal with the United States. We should have been developing markets all around the world. And Canadians are well-regarded. I'm all over the world, you know, and they always wonder why we don't see Canadians to do business. Now, we have to be competitive in taxes. We have to be competitive on, on many fronts. And we are in some areas. For example, it's a wonderful advantage, our health care system, vis-a-vis the U.S. for companies. It's a lot less costly for organizations, Canada Pension, etc. So we do have some advantages. Our dollar is getting a little bit lower. It's, it's had a run-up uh, on commodities and the U.S. Uh, weakening of the dollar. My, my concern as I look forward is Donald Trump's stance on uh, NAFTA. That can really hit manufacturing jobs, and that's where we have to broaden out. Uh, it can also impact, I mean, technology. You see these large uh, technology firms in the States just draining people from Waterloo and from Canada to hire them down there. I know we're trying to get Google and some of these places in Canada, but in actual fact, the competition is for brains. Uh, and also, the U.S. is thickening up the border. Uh, even with, with or without NAFTA, they keep putting in uh, duties. You saw the duty on the Bombardier jet, 300%. Yes. I mean, yeah. that's a joke. Now it got turned down. Softwood lumber. There's a duty on Canadian softwood lumber, but not on Russian lumber. So you can see that we have to try to build beyond America and our laziness of the past is going to cost us. So if I had had my fear, it's the thickening border, it's NAFTA, and, and companies will be forced. If they can't get just-in-time deliveries to U.S. companies, they've got to locate in the U.S. Mm-hmm. NAFTA, do you think it's going to survive? We hear Americans talk about, just recently, a few days ago, we heard uh, one of the negotiators, I think it was, with, on the U.S. side, talk about uh, the United States having uh, forming a deal with, um, with Mexico and then dealing with Canada later, we were all seem to be the favored uh, child with the United States. Is well, that is that changing? True. Well, I, I, the, I think the Americans would like to divide it both ways, but they're very aggressive, uh, aggressive slash bullying uh, in this in this area. And it, and you know, Canada actually we run a deficit with the U.S. Where we run a surplus is when they get into our energy. Uh, but we buy far more American products than they buy Canadian products in the manufacturing realm. But uh, facts and reality don't have, a, don't have a play in this. So it's going to be tough negotiations, and the nego- U.S. negotiators are always talking about getting up and walking away. Uh, I would not be, su- be surprised to see NAFTA scrapped. It's, but, but this is the border, the thickening of the border with duties and, and the regulations and NAFTA are, would be my concerns. The tax stuff, I mean, we, Ontario is in competition with the northern U.S., and we seem to think we're in a some kind of parallel universe not affected by that. And, and I think uh, the provincial government has been too, too ideological, <laughs> some might even say corrupt, over the last several years, and not realizing that we have to smarten up. We're in a tough game. 
In 30 seconds, does business have a preference of political parties? Uh, oh, I think so. My, my guess, I can't speak for anybody else. I would guess is we'd, we'd like to see a, an alternative to present government because, you know, you look at the money they've wasted on corruption and scrapping plants and, and, and whatever. They, they uh, just seem to be scrambling. And, and they're, they're ideologues. They're not really mm-hmm. saying, hey, what can we do to really build this province? I'm, and listen, uh, you know, I may be a capitalist pig, but I think we also have to deal with human needs. But, you know, it, it, sometimes that's just a political game that they're right. playing. I think we need government. Tom, always uh, thank you so much for the time. Uh, you're a, a calm, calming voice whenever my blood pressure gets to that state where medication is necessary. Call me anytime, Roy. <laughs> thank you, Tom. Oh, Tom okay. Caldwell, chairman of Caldwell Securities. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.